Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It, it, it's still cold. It's not as cold as it used to be here in Wisconsin. The, the president came to Milwaukee last night for a town hall meeting. I, I, I guess the invite was lost in my mailbox or, or something. Uh, hey, quick reminder that if you haven't yet signed up for Bulwark Plus, um, think about it. Uh, just I, I would like you to consider doing it because, you know, it's part of being a community going forward because we think of it as membership uh, those of you who have followed the bulwark know what we are doing know who we are and i think at this point it's pretty obvious that that fight is not over that it's going to continue for a long time jvl was on the podcast yesterday and said that this this fight uh, against uh, anti-democratic authoritarianism is going to consume the next 20 years of our politics i know that sounds a little bit depressing but um if if you have not yet done so, please consider doing it. And if you go to thebulwark.com slash Charlie, you can get a 30-day free trial membership, which gives you access to my morning shots, uh, JVL's triad. Of course, Jim Swift has an, uh, an email later in the day overtime. Uh, we have a suite of podcasts, um, some of which are going to continue to be free, obviously. Uh, Mona Charon's uh, outstanding beg to differ uh, this podcast uh, uh sunny bunch has uh, some great podcasts as well and then um for bulwark plus members we have weekly live streams on thursday night as well as the next level and the secret podcast so okay there's a lot i want to talk about today with our our guest david priest who is one of the most frequent over the last two years i think you're probably still right up there as the most frequent uh guest on the podcast uh David Priest, who is the who is the COO of Lawfare and the author of uh, the book How to Get Rid of a President. So, first of all, good morning, David. Good morning. It is an honor, as always, to be with you. You know, it's not that easy to get rid of a president, though. In retrospect, is it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it's not going well. It's funny. You know, I, I I wrote the book at a time when yes, you know, Trump was on everyone's mind and we were thinking about this. Um, definitely true. I, I didn't think that almost every chapter in there would somehow hit headlines during the, yeah. the succeeding two years. And after all of that, that there would be so little to show for it, right? I mean, yes, one yeah. of the methods of removing a president is voting him out. And that did occur. Got it. But all of the other fulminations about the 25th Amendment and about impeachment and about resisting his orders and undermining him from within and um, Republicans running against him in the primaries. To, uh, you know, all of those came about and yet nothing worked except for the will of the voters. And I guess that's not a bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing. But, and it's been clarifying about what the options are, particularly when we've also found out how uh, how powerful and unrestrained the, the, the president is. Well, let's get to that in a moment. I, I just got a couple of things I want to get off my chest before we do mm -hmm. this, in, including uh, whatever's going on with Tucker Carlson. Uh, on Fox News, I'm I'm sure that some of you uh, heard this. I know that you you, you heard it, uh, David. That with all the things that are happening in the world, and it's not like we're in a period where there are not major things to talk about. Tucker Carlson went off last night on Jill and Joe Biden's 44 year marriage, essentially saying it's a PR sham cooked up by political consultants. And compares it to climate change or something. I did you, you, okay. Let's just let's just play the audio of of Tucker Carlson proving once again that uh, that there is no bottom uh, to the hackery that uh, we are we're being subjected to. So Tucker Carlson. And at the heart of this great American family is a love story, 
One man, one woman, and the fires of passion that changed the course of our history. Not since Anthony dined with Cleopatra in downtown Antioch, before they killed themselves, obviously, has a country witnessed a love story as moving and poignant as Jill and Joe's. No, ladies and gentlemen, Jill Biden is not Joe's caretaker. She isn't his nurse. She's his fully equal romantic partner. Together, they are like besotted teens. Yet at the same time, they are the wise and knowing parents of a nation. As a headline from Politico on Valentine's Day put it, quote, historians and relationship experts agree. The first couple's romantic gestures aren't just genuine, they're restorative. So it's official. The Biden's affection is totally real. It's in no way part of a slick PR campaign devised by cynical consultants determined to hide the president's senility by misdirection. <laughs> Not at all. Their love is as real as climate change. What a wow. sand. I mean, I, wow. like, I mean, there's so much going on there. See, it's, yeah. you know, the throwing in the climate change, but also that this is completely fake because um, Jill doesn't really love him. She, it's, it's just sort of a a a, consp- a plan to so that we don't notice that Joe Biden is completely senile because that's, of course, going to be the meme and the narrative. So and, we go, we go know, after the marriage. If it weren't for Tucker Carlson's delivery which you know sounds reasonable and he's he's a he's a fine speaker so you find yourself just nodding along because of the cadence of his delivery but this is going to become indistinguishable from Alex Jones soon because yeah, it is. it's it's batshit crazy it's yeah. talking about this all as some kind of publicity stunt as if there could be no other reason for two people to show affection uh, other than the fact that they you know want to have some good look in the PR realm. I mean, come on, the the death of irony has been going on for quite some time. But <laughs> for a guy who fawned over Donald Trump and didn't make an issue of any of his many relationships, you're going to attack the the Bidens for being normal human beings? Come on, man. Well, I, again, Bill Crystal has a good tweet about this. He says it's it's good, perhaps, that we have Tucker Carlson around to remind us how thoroughly debasement, demagoguery, and bigotry rot the soul. Uh, but, you know, it, there there is there is a a world in which you can disagree with somebody politically, but still have a space to admire the relationships in their lives. Right. They say, I think you're completely wrong on taxes and on climate change or whatever. But I recognize that you're a good and loving father and, and husband. Is, is, is that asking too much that we have to go into all of this that, uh, you know, one thing about Joe Biden and I, I have to I have to say that I. I, I'm going to disagree with a lot of the things that he does. I disagree with some of the things that he's done in the past. I, you know, he and I are not politically aligned, but but he is a fundamentally decent, compassionate, empathetic human being. And, you know, his life experiences, what he's been through with his family, with his children, losing his first wife, this relationship with Jill is is a good story. If you have retained the capacity to still recognize basic humanity, which clearly the folks at Fox News and Tucker Carlson uh, no longer have. It's also it's it's also intellectually lazy, Charlie, because, you know, you've got Tucker Carlson and his production staff who have 24 hours in a day like the rest of us to come up with a monologue for a show and for, you know, a rant to go on. There are plenty of things in either Biden's announced policies or in his likely policies that from his perspective, he he could criticize. He could bring up something about China. He could bring up something about stimulus funding and its levels. He could talk about his nominees and their records. 
Um, those are all legitimate. And in fact, there are some things there that could, in theory, contribute to public discourse. And when you don't do that, and you instead want to focus on whether the public displays of affection between a you know married couple are you know being orchestrated for the cameras, that just shows that you're not willing to take on the topics that actually could be useful, maybe because you don't believe them, maybe because you don't think Biden really is the radical left-wing Antifa card-carrying member that you pretend he is, um, or maybe it's just because you're phoning it in and it's a lot easier to gripe yeah. like that, almost make it up on the spot than it is to do real analysis of policy issues. This is a really important point because what's happening is it's the substitute of of the cartoon for reason debate. Because yes, um, and and Tucker Carlson has the capacity personally, and he has the time to engage in serious discourse if he wanted to do that. But instead, he's just going to sort of you know throw out these tropes, these knee jerk. Uh, memes, you know, to, uh, you know, to the, to his, to his listeners. Yeah, it, it is, it is lazy. So this actually relates to this, believe it or not, this, this may, this may seem like a kind of a strange segue, but, uh, you know, this got me thinking about, um, Dan, Dan Crenshaw. Now my, my newsletter today is usually not as long as it is. And, and we made it free so you can go online and, and actually see it. Um, I wrote about Dan Crenshaw, who's the congressman, um, sort of Trumpian celebrity from, from, from Texas. And, and, and the reason I, I, I sort of put Tucker Carlson and Crenshaw in the same category is these are both very intelligent guys, which in many ways, I think, makes them worse because they know better. They know what they're doing. I mean, you may have a guy like Matt Gates. The guy the guy's as dumb as a box of rocks. He doesn't know what he's doing. Jim Jordan's a complete moron. So it's like you put you could you know, yes, they're deplorable, but you put them aside it's the Josh Hawley's, the Tucker Carlson's, the Ted Cruz's and the Dan Crenshaw's who I think are so much worse because they're they're conscious of what they're doing. They right. they know they know that they're engaging in dishonest demagoguery and they do it anyway. They're smart enough that they know better. They have a choice. They are conscious of the choice they're making. And they do it anyway with right. with no shame, at least no public shame. And I don't know how to categorize it. I don't know if Tucker Carlson is the Ben Crenshaw of Josh Hawley's or if Ben <laughs> Crenshaw is the Josh Hawley of Tucker Carlson's or if Josh Hawley is the Tucker Carlson of Ben Crenshaw's. But they're all in that same space of people who have decided that this is something they can ride quite consciously and pretend that they are stupider than they are and play on the fact that their supporters are just as stupid. Well, some of them aren't, and some of them see through this. And that's where a play like Adam Kinzinger's is all the more interesting because he could easily do the same kind of thing. He's smart enough that he could play the same game, but he's not treating his constituents as idiots. And I respect that. Speaking of Adam Kinzinger, I, I have to say that one of the most entertaining things over the last 48 hours has been reading the letter from his family members. And apparently mm. there's there's a second letter as as well. And they are, um, shall we say, not not eloquent, but quite revealing. And this pattern that we're seeing all over the country where anyone who has taken a stand against Trump is being denounced, they've loosed the flying monkeys against them. There are these resolutions of censure in one state after another. Family members are excommunicating others. And what's interesting is that what is this other than the Republican Party's cancel culture? I mean, I'm sorry, irony alert again, if irony hadn't been beaten to death by hammers many years ago. It's like this is their they're 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 arguing that the biggest fight in America today is against the cancel culture. 
And yet, what is this? What is this other than the, the cancel culture of 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 the right? You dare break with the orange god king, and they come down on you, and then you know God is disappointed in you, etc. Yeah, so you know, kudos to guys like Adam Kinzinger who had to know that this was coming his way, and he did it anyway. the The hard part is going to be the the bet he is making on the Republican electorate or what is left of people self-describing as Republican. Um, he is saying, I am going to fight for this party that I believe in, for the principles that once were upheld by the party, and I don't want to let that go. And I, and I do respect that. However, uh, there have been polls in the last couple of days, I can't cite them from memory, but uh, maybe listeners will remember them, that something like 75 or 80% of Republicans um, still see Donald Trump as the leader of the party and having a major role in the party going forward. Um, if you're Adam Kinzinger and you're you're fighting from the yeah, base of 20%, maybe 25% of voters who don't believe that, um, that is a hard uphill climb. And I respect his courage. I respect his persistence even this far. But that that is not an encouraging sign for him. No, it's it, it's not. And so those polls, I, I'm going to wait to see how it all settles out. And there's a, I have a couple of different takeaways from the polls, including this this Politico morning consult poll that came out yesterday that you know showed that that Republicans are still pretty much OK with Donald Trump. But 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 there's 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 a, there's a couple of asterisks there, uh, including the fact that Donald Trump right now has a 34 percent approval rating. So you want to talk about red flags for the Republican Party? Yes, the Republican Party is still Trumpian, but the but the uh, a Trumpian Republican Party could face some serious headwinds in general elections. And that's part of the problem is that while the Republican primary electorate is headed in one direction, um, voters as a whole are headed in a very, very different direction. That, that poll had Joe Biden with like a 63 percent approval rating. Mm -hmm. So you kind of see where this is. This is all playing out. Also, there was a Quinnipiac poll the other day that showed that, again, strong support for Trump. But as many as 20 percent of Republicans sort of drifting off. Re Republicans can't afford to lose 20% of their constituents in an election. They just can't do that. Well, they they can't on a national basis. That's that's evident. And they can't in what used to be called purple states. Yeah, uh, Oklahoma. But they can yeah. in quite a few states. That is, you, you could have Republican Party overall lose, let's say, 20% of its support and they would still dominate in a well, large number true. of states that would give them at least a significant minority in the Senate, enough to block some legislation, enough certainly to um, always have the one third plus necessary to prevent things like conviction of a president in an impeachment no, trial. That, that, so I, I feel like you're right. Yeah. But at the national level, the national level doesn't drive it. It's at the state and local level. And at the state and local level, You've got thriving Republican parties in many places that are digging in their heels and see no reason to change. No, that, that that's true. So um, yesterday, uh, since we did our podcast yesterday, uh, Trump came out with a uh, long, long, long statement attacking Mitch McConnell, which was completely predictable on one level, um, but also an indication that it was just pent up. There have been people around him somehow who have gotten Donald Trump to exercise some restraint and discipline, which is sort of not his thing. Um, but he, it, it kind of exploded yesterday. So he put out this statement. 
Mitch is a doer, sullen, and unsmiling political hack. And if Republican senators are going to stay with him, they will not win again. He will never do he will never do what needs to be done or what is right for our country. Now, you know what really jumped out at me? Did the same thing jump out at you about that sentence? That the, what what hit me up front was the yeah. stunning lack of self awareness about Republicans yeah. will never win again with him <laughs> yes, because that's true. Trump Trump has led them to uh, almost historic defeats. Yes, that's right. I am still the winner. You're the if you follow him, you'll lose. Like okay, this is from the president who lost the presidency, lost the House of Representatives, and has now lost the Senate. But whatever. Actually, what hit me because I'm I'm a more trivial thinker is is the use of the word doer. Yep. There's no way that Trump yep. wrote that. He's a There's zero person. chance he never wrote that sentence. No chance. Okay, so back to uh, why I'm obsessed with uh, with Dan Crenshaw. Yeah, uh, he wrote the, he wrote this piece for the Daily Wire, which is uh, that used to be is it, is that still Ben Shapiro's place? But I mean, it's one of these a, a website that's really kind of all about lib owning and and liberal tears and everything. But he's written this this sort of sanctimonious piece, what it means to fight. And he talks about, you know, the politicians and the pundits who scream fight, you know, aren't necessarily, you know, persuading anyone. They're they're not necessarily, um, you know, solving problems. Uh, these politicians and pundits are creating a conservative space, uh, conservative safe space um, that won't bring us real cultural and political progress. And then he talks about the grifting. You know, the dirty little secret is a lot of these people, mm-hmm. you know, are doing this in order to keep people mad to get clicks and get money and everything. And, and there's been a lot of, you know, there's been some folks who are saying, Oh, this is, this is great. This is wonderful that Dan Crenshaw is speaking out about this, you know, grifting garbage. But I, it's like, wait, guys, this is Dan Crenshaw who himself has been this grifty Trumpian troll. I mean, it was two months ago. He put out that video ad um, you know, Georgia Reloaded, where he portrays himself as a, you know, does the Navy SEAL stuff where he goes in and he fights Antifa. This is a guy that, you know, has been hanging out with Charlie Kirk and Ben Shapiro. And, you know, he's really become a kind of a fixture on the right and was one of those who signed on to the Texas lawsuit. I mean, I could go on and on and on. So it's like, you know, another death of irony. But but the point I made, and I, I do this in great length in, in my newsletter, is what's pretty obvious is that Dan Crenshaw wants it both ways. He wants to be the clown and the critic. I mean, he wants to be able to do all this stuff. But at the same time, it's obvious he knows what he's doing. You know what I mean, mm-hmm. David? I mean, he he knows that when he's standing up there throwing out these stupid tropes, that it's, you know, that it's grifty and it's demagogic and it's misleading and maybe counterproductive. And maybe even he feels a little bit guilty about it, but not guilty enough to actually stop doing it. Right. So. And it's it's going to work enough for him. That And that's why yeah. he's doing it. When when it's something like this uh, article is enough that you get people like David French commenting positively mm-hmm. on it and saying, this and is the David. kind of thing that needs to be said. You've accomplished your purpose, which is you've put yourself just back over that line of acceptability within some crowd of people who who know better. Well, that overlooks a lot. That overlooks his past actions, that overlooks the fact that he was conscious of what he did earlier and that he's really not, you know, arguing to uh stop doing what people have been doing along those lines. He he makes the the argument lightly, but he says no, it's still about the fight. It's just the fight shouldn't be gratuitous and it shouldn't be name-calling. That's essentially his point. Well, yeah. you, you're kind of missing the big point there if that's what your argument is, because 
the whole complex of these interrelated fighting metaphors is what led to January 6th. And you're not disavowing that entire movement. No, you're, you're not disavowing that. I mean, he goes way back. People just need to remember. I mean, he he went on national television to defend Trump on Charlottesville. He made this video defending Trump's handling of the coronavirus that with the Washington Post singled it out for, you know, how incorrect, misleading it was and everything. So th- this guy has been and, and, and here's the part of the tragedy of the Republican Party is is that he could have been more like an Adam Kinzinger. Um, mm-hmm. You know, our, our colleague right. Jim Swift reminds us that that he actually beat a a really flaky candidate back in 2018. And people thought that he was going to be, you know, one of the more thoughtful, reasonable guys. Remember? And, yeah. you know, the, the, the you know Saturday Night Live featured him and he said, hey, this is guy. This is this guy. This guy could be one of the real leaders of the future of the party. And instead, like so many other Republicans, like Elise Stefanik, he has made the calculation. No, I'm going to go in with the Charlie Kirk, Ben Shapiro, you know, Donald Trump, uh, you know, uh, you know, meme, yeah. meme, meme uh, spreading, shit posting um, side of the party. And here's the thing is it, it's working right now because he's you know garnering this small aura of respectability again. But he only needs to look at what happened yesterday with McConnell and Trump. I mean, look at McConnell. You know, McConnell's a guy who has, you know, all but sold his soul to Trump's bidding for five years. And if McConnell didn't expect a statement like this from Trump after McConnell speaking out against him, you know, he hasn't been paying attention the last few years because, you know, the first time you speak out against the Orange God King, he flushes you down his golden toilet without a second thought. <laughs> and Crenshaw has just seen that. And if he's trying, to push back just enough to be seen as we don't need to be name callers. You know, we don't need to say things like crazy Nancy. Well, that was Trump's brand. And if he goes a half step further, Trump will denounce him for not being Trumpy enough. And and the foundation will fall out from under him the same way it has from McConnell, who is going to face, no doubt, a Trumpy challenge if he chooses to run for reelection. Six years is a long time. But Mitch McConnell has, you know, sold his soul and now he's going to be reaping. Yeah. No matter how, how much you've sucked up, if you break with him once, um, you are going to be completely dead. And, you know, you, you, yep. you mentioned the crazy Nancy thing. Like one, one last thing about Dan Crenshaw, and then I want to move on from this. Um, I'm, I'm, I just am struck that people were taking this piece seriously, which kind of blows my mind. Um, he has become a fixture. Crenshaw has become a fixture at, you know, Turning Point USA and, you know, the Charlie Kirk type stuff. And. Back in 2019, right after the first impeachment vote, Trump is a featured speaker at this Charlie Kirk event, and so, so was Crenshaw. And Trump's going on, he's ripping the, all the grievances, you know, talking about, you know, windmills and talking about crazy Nancy Pelosi. And here's Dan Crenshaw bounds up on stage, you know, to embrace him. And then, like, hands Trump his voting card, his red voting card that he voted against impeachment. I mean, it was just such a shameless suck up job. And, and and now he's supposed to be this deep thinker who warns us against uh, warns us against, you know, insults and rhetoric. Give me a break. All right. So, David, this is we talked about Mitch, Mitch McConnell. Um, let's look back on impeachment. It's only Wednesday. This vote actually mm-hmm. took place on Saturday. Things move so quickly. It's like, why can't you guys, you know, you know, put that in your rear view mirror? Well, give us a moment here because this was a big deal. This was a major event. You wrote the book on removing the president. So give me your thoughts after you know, after, you know, three, four or five days of thinking about what the Senate did and didn't do. Yeah, uh, it's well, it's the good, the bad 
and the ugly. And I've been increasingly shifting towards the latter part of that ugly. in, the, in yeah. the past few days. So let me go through each and then um, yeah. maybe we'll reflect on, on each after I finish. So first, the good. The good is that this vote truly made history. I mean, the first two impeachment trials of presidents had no votes to convict the president from that president's party. Uh, Andrew Johnson famously was almost convicted anyway because the Republicans had such a majority in the Senate, but they didn't do it. And certainly Bill Clinton didn't do it. And of course, Mitt Romney a year ago did vote to convict Trump on an article. So there was one. This time there were seven. And that's that's 14% of Senate right. Republicans, which dwarfed the percentage of House Republicans who voted to impeach in the first place. I think it was something like uh, 4.7, 4.8% of House Republicans. That is important. That is the sternest rebuke a president has ever had in the impeachment and removal and disqualification process. And we shouldn't lose sight no. of that. When you had Senator Burr vote to convict, I did a, a, you know, a, a fist pump in the air. I thought, here we go. Here's somebody who does know better and is not pretending to not know better. That's the good news. I know you share some mm -hmm. of that feeling about the good news, but that's yeah. about all there is. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and and Cassidy. I mean, those those were big surprises to me. I I, I have to yep. admit it. There, there, seven was more votes than I was expecting. Uh, so yes, that that's all true. The bad news. Uh, Donald Trump was not convicted of perhaps the easiest impeachment article uh, yet dropped on a president. Uh, this is something that was largely in public view. There was there were, there were tweets, there was a speech, there was the action and inaction that was publicly visible, and it led to death, and there was not a conviction. And, and that is unequivocally bad news. The fact that you cannot condemn that is the bad. Now, it gets there's uglier. Worse. There's, there's worse. Okay. I thought that was there's pretty worse. Okay. Yeah. The, the ugly, that's the good and bad having to do with Donald Trump. Um, the ugly has to do with us. The ugly has to do with our political future. And I will admit, I am somewhat influenced on this because I am reading the excellent uh, book, The Storm Before the Storm, The Beginning of the End of the Roman Republic by Mike <laughs> Duncan. And Watching watching January 6th and watching the reaction to it, it's not a direct parallel, but it stunningly reminds me of 133 BCE when Tiberius Gracchus was proposing a number of reforms as one of the, the tribunes in Rome. And he was in the sacred area uh, within the city of Rome where no weapons are allowed. And they were having an assembly and the Senate convened for a session nearby and the council presiding over the Senate incited a mob, and they trampled over to the assembly, grabbing whatever they could on the way, like sticks and table legs and other bludgeons. And they proceeded to just slaughter the people at the assembly, uh, including ultimately Tiberius. And what happened afterward? Yes, some people were shocked. This was the first time in the Roman Republic that this kind of political violence had come about. But the senators who drove it were not punished. They carried on business as usual. That's my fear, is we have an impeachment. This time, this was not an impeachment about 
perjury with Bill Clinton lying about his his affair. This was not even an impeachment about using the instrument of state power to help oneself in a re-election, such as the impeachment last year. Um, this was not an impeachment about nominating and putting someone into an office illegally, as Andrew Johnson was impeached for. This was an impeachment of somebody who had said, I'm probably not going to accept the results of this election. It's rigged. Then when he lost the election, refused to concede, then inspired a mob to move to the Capitol and people died. The founders were worried about things like presidents accepting a title of honor from a foreign prince or taking an envelope of cash from a foreigner. That's what they saw as clearly impeachable and removable behavior. We have something light years beyond that. And the political system cannot handle it and decided to acquit. We have broke a precedent. Political violence, no matter what people say about how unacceptable it is, we have we have crossed the Rubicon. That is now acceptable in some way. And the next time, I don't know if it's two years, five years, or 20 years, the next time there is something like this, some kind of political violence because people could not accomplish their objectives within the constitutional order, we will look back and say, well, the system didn't punish it enough back then. And so it gave people the idea that we can go there again and again. That's the ugly part of this failed impeachment uh, disqualification vote in the Senate. So you've, you've, you've uh, piqued my inner historical wonk here with the story of the, of, of the murder of, uh, of Tiberius Gracchus. Yeah. This was 133 BC, and it was a shocking departure from the Republican norms that everybody had regarded as very, very stable in the Roman Re Republic. But the Republic continued after that until mm -hmm. Julius Caesar. But is, is the argument that, that something fundamental had shifted, and even though they had the forms of the Republic, that, 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 the, that, the, that the, the, the fall was already preordained by this? I'm just, you know, take that narrative a little bit further. So what happened? What was the damage that was done to the Roman Republic? The reason I'm asking this, because I think this is a fascinating question, that we always know, it's like a cliche that in our heads, that, you know, democracies perish, democracies are fragile. Um, right. Every republic uh, in, in, in history before ours had fallen at, at some time. We thought that we were immune from that sort of history, but now it becomes much more urgent. What causes democracies to die? What causes a republic to fall? So 133, the Senate g goes out as a mob, murders this reformer. He was he was sort of a he was he was he was popular with the with the underclass, right? Yes, he was the, 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 um, the, the, the Gracchi. Mm -hmm. He had a brother, yeah. right? It was called. The, the, yes. Okay, so mm -hmm. Tiberius Gracchus, mm -hmm. he's he's murdered. There are no consequences. So, play the story out. What did this mean for the Republic? Well, the big issue was the that breakdown of norm and the creation of a new precedent, uh, and that is once you have the murder of a political opponent within the sacred space itself, and it is not punished, it it, it creates a new precedent, and precedents, you know, open up new opportunities. And what you saw over the succeeding hundred years or so is in, in steady drumbeat of political violence, of murders when the political system itself did not work. And I think Mike Duncan would be the first to say that's not a direct parallel to what's happening now. Right. But but it is a warning sign that once you accept the the triumph of naked force instead of constitutional order, 
uh, or in Rome's case, just law and order without the, the same kind of constitution. But once you accept that force is acceptable, even if only in extreme circumstances within the system, then it weakens all the aspects of the system up to that point, and it enables more action against the system with violence. And that's what happened in Rome. You end up with an empire. Now, there's many, many steps between there. And you know, I'll right. leave you to talk to, to, to Mike about it if you want. But it is the kind of thing where looking back, one could see, oh, okay, um, perhaps if the Senate itself in ancient Rome, not our Senate, but if Senate, if the Senate itself had taken dramatic action against those who had instigated this event and led it, their own leadership, um, perhaps that would have cut this precedent off, at least weakened it. And that's the parallel for this. If the Senate, we can't prevent what happened on January 6th, unless you and I are going to build a time machine and go back and, and change history, it's done. But if the US Senate would have said with an even more bipartisan fashion, this is not acceptable uh, we we must acquit. I'm sorry, we must convict. Yeah. We cannot possibly acquit because of the precedent that sets. Maybe it would have minimized the damage, but we can't pretend that just because Trump is out of office, that the damage isn't there. Um, we are we are not done with the dynamics that led to this. We're and not fact, done. This may have fanned some flames that may take a while to come out again. Uh, but I'm unfortunately a pessimist on the the issue of political violence in the United States. No, this is this is a great point. And can I just totally switch up the metaphors? I, I often think that sometimes these the, the the blow that you have to the norms, you may not immediately understand the consequences. It's a little bit like you know watching a battleship that has taken a a torpedo hit below the waterline. It could mm-hmm. go on for a while. I mean, mm-hmm. it could go. It could keep sailing on. Everybody thinks everything's fine. Hey, we were you know we we survived that. And then only, you know, you know, a few hours later, you start to realize you're taking on water, you're listing and everybody's dead. Um, but and there are still ways no. of fixing it. Even in that metaphor, right. you can still, still repair it, but it gets harder but and harder. Understand. And it does take a, a huge consensus and a massive effort to do it, if you will, a, a bulwark <laughs> against this kind of effort. And that's what's needed now is a consensus that didn't happen in the Senate. Um, but a consensus across America of like-minded people um, across the political spectrum who say, you know what, that is not acceptable. Political violence must be repudiated. We can never even consider it in the future, despite the precedent that's happened. No, I agree with you on this. I think that, in fact, the the fact that the the extremist, anti-democratic, anti-authoritarian a cohort um, in, in the Republican Party is still there, and they yeah. have become too big to fail. They have become a constituency. Yep. So as I've, as I've said over the last couple of days, in some ways, this is Trump's party, but it's even worse because they were willing to countenance that. We also ha- have to understand that the peaceful transfer of power is the outlier. It's not the norm in, in human civilization um, that, the, that the centuries of building and creating those institutions it you know I don't don't necessarily mean that that they're not very very fragile and so we had taken that for granted. There's a huge amount of complacency about the peaceful transfer of power, and then suddenly we have an election where we did not have a peaceful transfer of power because of the orchestration of the president of the United States who lied, you know, fomented the mob, etc. Et, et and we've kind of like looked the other way. And knowledge and of that history internationally as well as U.S. history is what's going to save us. Is having an education of the fact that, yeah, you may like the fact that your guy 
had flags waving on the Capitol and a de- delayed vote to certify his successor. You may like that, but just put Barack Obama in instead of Donald Trump or, or put you know, AOC or Bernie Sanders in there. Would you approve of it? And pointing out the hypocrisy, because that is where it leads. If you look at enough cases internationally, the violence doesn't stop when your side wins. Uh, often it leads to the worst possible outcome for you and the worst possible outcome for the system as a whole to guarantee individual rights. Um, and that's that kind of education might be helpful. Um, but again, I'm I'm so down on the Senate right now. And listen, there was a way out for at least some senators that they chose not to take. You heard several senators, Mitch McConnell being the most famous at this point, who said, I condemn everything Donald Trump did, but this was an unconstitutional process because the president had already left office. Now, that had been decided by the Senate. The Senate had ruled that, in fact, this was a constitutional process. So their argument was irrelevant for the vote on whether to convict or acquit, but they used that as a fig leaf in order not to convict. Well, the honorable thing, the respectable thing would have been to not be present for the vote. If you have said that this is an unconstitutional process, you cannot take part in it if you truly believe that. Now, what would that have done? That would have taken by the count of Brian Colt, who looked at the actual statements of every single senator who voted to acquit and what their reasons were. He said there were seven that were in that category of McConnell that Hmm. said, I would have voted to convict, but it's unconstitutional, so I have to vote to acquit. Now, that takes you down to 93 senators voting, and the two-thirds threshold then applies to those 93. You're still not there with 57 votes. But if a few other senators who had mixed motives, who said, well, I think Trump wasn't fully to blame, but I'm mostly upset about the unconstitutionality, that actually gets you up to a number where if people would have done the respectable, honorable, and intellectually honest thing of saying, I cannot participate because the Senate says this is constitutional, but it is not a constitutional process, meaning I cannot take place, you would have had the denominator going down enough that 57 votes would have convicted the president. This this Republican Senate uh, was just never going to do that. Uh, They were never going to um, allow a result that... that, um, would have led to the, the conviction and disqualification of, of Donald Trump. So let's go mm-hmm. back to Mitch McConnell for for just yeah. a moment, because the whole thing is kind of fascinating. If you were to ask most conservatives, OK, what was the best thing that you liked the most about Trump's uh, presidency, about about his legacy? Now, the reality might be they they liked the cruelty. They liked the tweets. They actually liked all that stuff. But they the answer that you're probably going to get w- would would include something like, well, the judges, the Supreme Court. And what's also interesting is that that wouldn't have happened without Mitch McConnell. I mean, really, when you think about it, there's nothing that Donald Trump accomplished that he did not need and rely on Mitch McConnell. But now Mitch McConnell is completely thrown under the bus. Um, One one other point about what's really interesting in this gap between the Republican elites and the Republican grassroots, just in terms of money at the crudest possible level, because, of course, uh, the most cynical possible level, because that's, of course, where McConnell actually exists and, you know, Mm -hmm. keeping and maintaining power. There's a lot of speculation that he had to give the speech that he gave in order to reassure the corporate big money donors of the Republican Party that everyone wasn't right. crazy. That right. He had to say to all these companies out there, OK, Marjorie Taylor Greene does not speak for the party. I am the leader in the Senate and this is what I'm saying. So it's safe to come back in again. 
And he does need that big money. He does need the big donors to write the big checks, the big super PAC money, all of that stuff. But the flip side is that in Republican politics, there's an there's a entirely different path, which is the small donors and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the the Donald Trumps can raise hundreds mm-hmm. of millions of dollars where Trump right. can um, through the small donors. So that it's like there's two different universes, two different incentive structures that are dividing the Republican establishment elite from the Republican grassroots. That's just almost like a throwaway. Absolutely. And if you're Marjorie Taylor Greene up up to Mitch McConnell and you look at that, if I saw the figure right, it was after the election was lost and after it was clear to anyone uh, thinking rationally that the president was on his way out, he still managed to raise a quarter of a billion dollars. Now, if you see that and you think you can capture some of that, whether by kissing up to Trump or just capturing some of his rhetoric, you don't really care about Mitch McConnell and his big pocket donors as much. Yes, the Senate has changed. It is driven by leadership much more than by legislation you know, between individual senators reaching across the aisle. I, I get that. The Senate is not the body it was a generation previous, but you still have senators who, who want to remain in office. You still have senators who want to do what the donors say they do. But if those donors are individual, small donors, and they still get you the money you need, maybe you don't need Mitch McConnell quite as much. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's it's quite an it's quite an interesting drama playing out. I, uh, I, I'm I'm somewhat more willing to give him a little bit of credit for saying what he said, but I certainly understand the people who who think that the guy sold his soul. And again, I just think this. Uh, it was it was within his power to draw that bright red line against political violence that you just described so eloquently and to hold uh, Trump accountable. And uh, he didn't do it. He, he, well, he choked. And so the words you're, you're don't. Right. You know, you know. You're right. And individually, I think he had that choice. He for the purposes of this session, you know, he was not the former Senate majority leader. Now the Senate minority leader. He was someone sitting uh, in a trial of Donald J. Trump for this impeachment article. That that was his job. And he had an individual choice to make about where to vote. And he knew what the right thing to do was. He laid out the case almost as effectively as the House managers did when he spoke. He chose not to do it. Now, yeah. do I think that he would have pulled his caucus with him if he would have lobbied behind the scenes? No, I don't. Uh, I don't think Mitch McConnell has that much sway. He he has a lot of sway in terms of what bills come to the floor when he was majority leader. That's true. But the caucus owns him more than he owns the caucus when it comes to the, the Trumpian dynamics here. I think Mitch McConnell might have been able to influence a handful of people who were on the fence and were saying, I need to come up with some fig leaf because I don't want to just be associated with Mitt Romney and Susan Collins. That's not the base in my state. Right. But if Mitch McConnell if he would have made public that he was voting to convict and he would have been talking to people behind the scenes saying, we can all do this, we will be united in this, he would not have brought 20 or 30 Republican senators with him, but he might have brought a handful. And yeah. that could have made a difference under the right circumstances. He no, did not. I, I, I think you're right. And unfortunately, I, th- I think what the, a lot of Republicans have internalized the notion that, that, <laughs> 
they can't put country over party, that they're supposed to be the party loyalists. I mean, I think that that soundbite from the Pennsylvania official who was ripping Pat Toomey saying, mm-hmm. we didn't send him here to vote his conscience or to do the right thing. We, whatever yeah. the rest of that sentence was, really, that's uh, that's a, that's an interesting philosophy. David Priest, I know you have to run. Really appreciate your time coming on and giving us your thoughts about uh, this uh, this failed impeachment effort. It's a pleasure as always. Thanks, Charlie. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.